on the ledge podcast and i'm your host jane perone and this week we're getting a little bit weird yes yes i know we're always a little bit weird on this show but that's okay because you know what you and i both know that weird is what makes us special In this episode, we're talking about a new book by University of Oxford botanist Chris Thorogood, Weird Plants. We'll be finding out why stapelias like to make themselves look like mouldy carcasses, why Lowe's pitcher plant decided to evolve toilet-shaped pitchers, and why when it comes to the Titan Arum, bigger really is better. I'm just back from an incredible two-day trip to the Netherlands visiting houseplant growers there and boy do I have some exciting stuff to bring you in upcoming episodes. For my Patreon subscribers I will bring you my first thoughts in the next few days about what I've seen and then in upcoming shows I'll cover more of my discoveries for all of my listeners. Thanks to Jen who became a Patreon subscriber this week. She signed up to donate $5 or more a month and that gets her two, yes, two extra episodes of An Extra Leaf, my Patreon-only podcast every month. Plus lots of other sneak previews and a chance to comment on my new logo draft. And in the run-up to Christmas, I'll also be sending all my Patreon subscribers a special Christmas greeting. If you're a Patreon subscriber and you haven't yet put your postal address onto your Patreon details, please go and do that. I'll put details in my show notes on how to do that in just a couple of clicks. But now let's crack straight on with my interview with the wonderful Chris Thorogood. If you can, while you're listening, get a copy of the show notes at janeperone.com in front of your eyes, because there are some wonderful images that go with the words in this book, painted by Chris himself. So if you want to see some of those, do check out the show notes so you can listen and look at the same time. Anyway, on with the interview and I'll let Chris introduce himself. My name's Chris Thorogood and I'm a botanist at Oxford University Botanic Garden. Chris, I've got your book, Weird Plants, sitting on my desk and as soon as this arrived, my children were like, ooh, what's that, mum? What's that strange plant on the front of that cool looking book? I think this book is is something that uh, will appeal to anyone who's ever kind of watched a horror movie and become a bit alarmed by crazy monstrous plants or as ever written off plants as being boring because actually this book is a brilliant uh piece of work showing us how fascinating plants can be the first thing that struck me though was the illustrations you did these illustrations yourself i did jane yes i did yeah and is this are you a professionally trained illustrator or was this a personal passion so i've always painted ever since i was very small um it's sort of something that runs in the family so um my father um used to paint as well and um it's something that i love to do so i'm very fortunate in my job that i get to see a lot of beautiful plants in their natural habitats 
And I have this sort of burning desire after I've seen them to try and capture some of that beauty on, on canvas. So it's something that um, I suppose it's a bit of a hobby that I've managed to incorporate into uh, my career. And why was it that you wanted to do a book about weird plants rather than any other kind of plant? I guess this is the sort of the underworld of, of the plant kingdom. We often think of plants as um, either being beautiful or a little bit inanimate. And um, some people think of plants and plant biology as boring. And I really wanted to turn that notion on its head and to really, in a way, startle people with these um, bizarre, strange and sometimes even sinister plants that a lot of people might not have thought about or, or seen plants in that way. So so um, I loved your opening question and how your kids were like, oh, my goodness, what on earth is this thing on the front cover? Because that means it's doing its job. <laughs> we should answer that question. What is the bizarre plant that uh, features on the front cover of this book? Do you know, Jane, that ghastly looking thing, <laughs> that's Hidnora africana. And it's um, it's a strange vampire plant, by which I mean it's a parasitic plant that steals its food from the roots of other plants. So it grows underground and it produces these strange cable-like um, roots. And from that, these um, absolutely bizarre mouth-like structures burst through um, the desert floor in southern Africa, which is where this plant grows. Um, and doesn't it look menacing? <laughs> it really does. I mean, I would not. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a whole uh, set of folklore associated with this plant. And one of the things I love about about that plant as well is that so little is known. So it, it's not really been successfully grown except from one occasion outside its native range. And very little is known about its biology. So for me as a botanist, I find plants like this just fascinating. There's so much more to do. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? That We see so many wildlife shows about animals, but where are the wildlife shows that focus on plants? There have been a few, I know, over the years, but... You know, I think we're we're getting undersold mm. on some of these amazing plant which plants, which is where your book comes in, of course, because in here are many, many wonders of of things that are are, are deeply odd. What's the oddest oddest thing in this book that we we should we should be looking out for? Um. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of odd stuff in here. I mean, there are there are things that trap animals. There are things <laughs> that stink to high heaven. I know. What's your personal favourite? My personal favourite, um, goodness, I I think the one that I love telling people about because the, I find the biology so fascinating is um, it's a pitcher plant. And when we think of Nepenthes pitcher plants, which many of us are, are familiar with, we think of them as these passive traps that sort of sit there and insects are attracted and they fall in and they digest them. And I guess that's pretty remarkable in and of itself because they've evolved to be carnivores. But there's one pitcher plant, in fact, there are a handful of them that have evolved a different way of acquiring nutrients. So there's one called Lowe's pitcher plant. It's named after Hugh Lowe, who um, encountered it on its native Mount Kinabalu in North Borneo. And this one produces these strange toilet-like pitchers, which is no coincidence because tree shrews climb onto the pitcher and eat the plant's nectar. And at the same time, um, and it's often the case that animals, whilst they eat, they excrete at the same time. And these tree shrews defecate. They basically poo into the pitchers, which, of course, is a wonderful source of nutrients because it's like manure, effectively. 
And this was a, a relatively recent discovery. And I think it's really exciting because, again, it challenges this notion of um, um, plants just sort of sitting there waiting for things to happen. This, this is almost a plant that, um, that seems to have, have evolved this very bizarre and peculiar way of, of getting its nutrients in a, um, a nutrient-poor environment. And I think that's just fascinating. A tree-shrew toilet there we go. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, what I guess it's a bit boring when you have that plant in 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 um, not in captivity. But if you've got that plant, if you're growing it in a b- botanic garden, you know you're not going to be able to have tree shoes <laughs> pooing into it. Do you? <laughs> you just got to feed it boring old fertilizer or whatever. How do they? <laughs> I don't know. I've I've, I've toyed with the idea of taming a squirrel or something i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know how that works there could be all kinds of strange activities going on around that plant but you're right that is absolutely incredible and the penthes generally i mean i was reading about the hemsleyana species which which has uh, a sort of a bat roosting function which again i mean i can imagine sort of walking through you know dense undergrowth and coming across you know a bat flying out of a pitcher plant and just thinking that i'm in some alternative universe what what how on earth does that work how does the bat it must be a big a small bat and a big pitcher who i know who'd have thought so so this is a another pitcher plant that has evolved um a subtly different way of getting its nutrients um and the bats they roost inside the pitchers and their geometry is is optimal to house these um bats they're sort of elongated and they've got a bit in the middle that the bats can cling on to and just like with the tree shrew, they urinate and they defecate into the pitchers, which, of course, feeds the plant. And these are relationships that benefit both the plant, which gets nutrients from the animal, and the animal, which has a safe place to roost to hide from predators. So these, um, to us, bizarre uh, relationships, they evolved under conditions where both the plant and the animal benefit. It's wonderfully intricate. And it's such a surprise for biologists because, again, this was another recent discovery. It's fascinating. I can imagine coming, like putting the pieces of that jigsaw together as a botanist must be a very exciting moment to suddenly go, hang on a minute, I know what's happening here. That's incredible. And, I, you know, moving on from uh, defecating shrews, um, uh, you know, it, but keeping along the same lines, we've got these incredible uh, plants which create a smell, shall we say, an odour. Um, and, and some of these yeah. are things that we can grow indeed as houseplants, the sepelias. Um, uh, you know, I've, I, I don't grow any myself, but I've seen many of my listeners have sepelias. Tell me about this family of plants. What, what are, why are they producing a stink? Do you know, I've got loads of these actually on, on my windowsill. I started collecting them years ago. And um, it's one of these plants that I keep on taking cuttings and I never seem to give them away. And there's probably a reason no one wants them. Um, but <laughs> my house is absolutely full of them. And in the summer, when they flower, you'll want to put them outside because they smell absolutely hideous, some of them. Now, these are plants which grow in um, semi-arid areas of southern Africa, and they may grow in environments where bees, which we um, conventionally think of pollinating flowers, might be scarce. And that's because these flowers are attracting altogether a very different type of pollinator. So these ones are attracting flies. So effectively, these flowers mimic a dead animal. They're covered in fur, which looks a bit like um, the, the fur of an animal or indeed mold. And they smell absolutely foul. And so flies are attracted to the flowers because they think it's a nice place to lay their eggs. 
And whilst they explore the flower, um, they pick up and deliver pollen. So they pollinate the flower. So this is a real fraudster because it's pretending to be something that it isn't to enslave these pollinating flies. Um, and again, it challenges this perception of flowers that we think of as something beautiful um, and something that we grow for our own appreciation. Um, but of course, these are the, the sexual reproductive organs of plants. Um, and this particular one um, is, is playing a nasty trick on, on flies um, to get pollinated. Well, describe the smell. Is it, is it like you kind of left your bin for two weeks and with a chicken <laughs> carcass in it? And, and is it that kind of rotting flesh kind of smell? It is. And, and you know, actually, when it's not that hot, you don't really notice it and it's not too bad. And some species are worse than others. Um, I think there's one called um, Orbia variegata, which I imagine some of your listeners might, might grow. It's, it's a fairly common house plant. And it's got these wonderful mottled little starfish shaped flowers. Um, but that one really does smell revolting. Um, <laughs> they're not for the faint hearted, but they're actually beautiful um, little succulents and their stems are really velvety um, and they're very easy to grow on a sunny windowsill. So I would recommend growing them if you can um, banish them um, to, to your outdoor area when they briefly flower. With my mischievous mind, I'm thinking of all kinds of tricks I could play with this plant, you know, like, <laughs> you know, putting it in my children's bedrooms or, you know, putting it outside the neighbour's house so they think they've got to clean the drains. I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of possibilities that arise from, from these kind of plants. And um, this isn't the only plant family to do this this kind of technique. I mean, not that this is a, a house plant that one could be growing, but of course the Titan Arum is the kind of uh, the movie star of this particular approach. Um, yeah. This is a plant now, especially with webcams around the world, that you can really watch watch the whole thing happening it's extraordinary isn't it yeah i mean why and why is it so big why does that plant need to be so large is there any reason that botanists have, have discovered or is it just hey it's a monster so it, it's a difficult question to answer and my view as a botanist is so this is a phenomenon called saprobiophily and basically um it means that these are plants that mimic a dead animal or a corpse to attract pollinating flies. So it's just an alternative way of, of getting insects to carry out their pollination services. And flies tend to like big corpses because it's a bigger place for their developing maggots uh, to feed. So this isn't very glamorous, I'm afraid. <laughs> and so so the bigger the corpse, the more flies you, you might be likely to attract. And so it might be that some of these horrible smelling flowers have evolved to be very large because they're mimicking an even better resource for flies to be attracted to to lay their eggs. Um, so so uh, something that's very large might be able to broadcast this disgusting stench far and wide across the rainforest and then very effectively attract these pollinating flies. So, so that's that's a hypothesis. Right. And I guess I suppose the other thing is compared to, say, the stapelias, these are growing in presumably pretty fertile ground as well. So they've got the, the nutrients and the water in order to literally grow that large in the first place you know they're in a good position to do that i've seen them a couple of times in in botanic gardens is it one of those plants that botanic gardens are like like it's like the panda of the botanic garden world you've got to have one to kind of draw people in is it, is it <laughs> as a showstopper 
Well, they do. I mean, people love them and they come in in their droves. Thousands and thousands of people come to see these these things bloom because they're just incredible. I mean, if, if anyone's seen one flowering, they're just the, the sheer enormity of, of, of the of the inflorescence. It's incredible. They really are. Yeah. And I love watching a webcam with these on just, you know, speed it up so you can see them actually uh, coming uh, to fruition is a rather wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, that's a great thing. If you draw somebody into a botanic garden to look at that, then hopefully they'll look at some other things along the way and, and, and learn a bit more about how how cool plants are. So uh, it's a it's a win win. We'll be hearing more from Chris in a few moments, but first it's time for a short ad from a fellow gardening podcaster, followed by our Q&A. Hello, I'm Sarah Wilson from the Roots and All podcast. On the podcast, I talk about gardening indoors and out with some of the most knowledgeable people around. Listen and find out the answers to things like why you should plant a tree in a square hole, not a round one. Whether or not that fox that comes in your garden is going to try and eat your cat. Why we've been growing alliums all wrong. Why we keep killing our cacti and succulents. How we can deal with slugs if we don't want to kill them. Why we as gardeners should be worshipping at the feet or bellies of earthworms. What you can expect if you hire a garden designer. Whether or not you need a gardener and how much you should pay them. How to disbud dahlias. How to water your houseplants. What is biochar? What is the perfect tree for a small garden? What are the best plants for wildlife? Anyway, you get the picture. There's loads of great information for growers, so I'd love it if you'd join me for an episode. Find the Roots and All podcast on iTunes or your usual podcast provider, or you can listen direct from my website, www.rootsandall.co.uk. And now it's time for Question of the Week, which comes from Katie, and she'd listened to the mini-episode on String of Hearts, Seropedia woodii, during our Trailing Plants special week recently, and she had a question. She writes, I have a couple of these at the moment. They're placed next to a window on top of my kitchen cupboard, so they'll trail down. The leaves keep going quite floppy and droopy, whereas I'm sure when I bought them, the leaves were quite firm and strong. What would you advise? Ah, Katie, this is a good question. The thing to remember about Serapegia linearis subspecies woodii, to give it its not-so-catchy full Latin name... This plant was first found growing in South Africa out of some rocks. In other words, this is a kind of a crevice dwelling plant that likes to have its water supplied in short, sharp shocks with lots of drainage. So if you overwater it, it will go a bit floppy. Oftentimes people think that wilting is a sign of underwatering, but it can be a sign of overwatering too. And that is probably the case with this little string of hearts. Bear in mind this plant has these underground tubers which save lots of water so it can go for an awful long time without needing any water because it can draw on the supplies in those tubers. That's not to say leave it bone dry all the time but if you do keep pouring water on there you will find the whole plant goes floppy. Depending on how bad it is Katie I would recommend taking this plant out of its pot and checking what the roots are doing, checking there's nothing mushy going on there and repotting in some fresh houseplant compost with some added perlite to aid drainage or even some cacti and succulent compost would be great. 
And going into the winter season, I would definitely recommend cutting right back on the watering of this plant. It will slow down in terms of growth. Uh, and if you add too much water, then the effect will be obvious on the plant. You may only need to water it once or twice a month at this time of year. And whatever you do, don't let the pot stand in water because that will be the death then of this plant. So I hope that helps, Katie, and that your string of hearts is soon recovered. If you do find that the main plant is unsavable, then you can take some cuttings and pop them in a glass of water. I know it's counterintuitive, but it does work. And this plant will root very, very quickly and you will be able to make new plants, even if the main plant can't be saved. Just try to pick cuttings from the stems that are the most firm and the least droopy and you should have success. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, do drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. I'm dying to help you stop your plants dying. See what I did there? And now back to my interview with Chris Thorogood, author of Weird Plants. We got onto the huge topic of the weird and wonderful world of orchids. Let's move on to something that is a bit more conventionally beautiful to us um, <laughs> plant growers. The orchids, there's a number of really cool orchids mm. in this book. Mm. That must have been hard to choose a few because there's so many different orchids with wonderful techniques for attracting uh, attracting pollinators. Which is your favourite of these ones in the book? We've got, I kind of like the uh, Rothschild slipper orchid. That's that's a really beautiful one, yeah. I mean, I suppose we, we could have called this book Chris's Favourite Plant. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, yeah, I had to sort of um, hold back on, um, well, how many I could actually have time to paint. But um, the, the orchids are, are the masters of deception. So I talked a little bit about how these flowers trick and deceive their pollinators. And the orchids, my goodness, they, they really know how to do that. And so there are these um, particular little orchids called bee orchids. The species of Ophrys, which are very common around the Mediterranean, and they mimic a female species of insect with um, with such acuity. So they 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 really mimic the the smell, the pheromone that these females produce, um, such that male insects think that it is a female insect um, who's ready to mate. And so these poor um, bamboozled sex crazed insects try to mate with the flowers um, and in so doing they pick up and deliver pollen so they bring about pollination uh, for the plant so so these are, are the plants that that trick insects and are on a whole different level <laughs> it's so cruel you've got to feel sorry for the the flies really uh, but not that sorry i mean <laughs> uh, the, we also have to mention the plant that is featured on the the opening page of your fraudster section uh now i'm gonna have a go at the latin mm. name here psychotria alata native central uh this yes. is a clean show so um i'm not quite sure how i can describe <laughs> luscious lips that's that's the alternative name i i use for it <laughs> yeah uh you'll have to get the book to find out the uh the the, the more racy <laughs> name for this plant but it just looks like a big pair of lipstick covered <laughs> lips does it i mean is it i need to google a picture of this it's i mean ha, have you hammed it up a bit here or does it really look like that it's so funny you say that it's so funny you say that jane because that i was just about to say that's the first thing everyone does when they see this because it's my painting of the plant and everyone says i'm going to google this because i don't believe there's a plant that looks like this yes it's psychotria 
Elata, um, beginning with a P. And yes, Google it, because I promise you this is what it looks like. Um, it's extraordinary, just like a pair of lips. And now I think about it, I'm sure I've seen this on, you know, you get those kind of clickbait things of, you won't believe these plants on like weird ones. <laughs> I'm sure I've actually seen this plant being mentioned before. Why, why is it? I mean, it's presumably it's not trying to look like a pair of lips. Presumably, no. it's, <laughs> that's not part of its plan. What is what is its um, mimicry attempting to do? It isn't actually. So, so this is an example of of a, a flower, and there are a few in the book that happen to look very much to our eyes um, like something we're familiar with. There's another one called a monkey face orchid. There isn't a particular reason, uh, a biological reason, that they happen to look like this. And actually, the the structure that looks like lips is the calyx or calyx of of, of the flower. So these bract like structures, and the true flowers will grow through the middle. And once they actually develop. The, the illusion that it looks like a pair of, of, of lips disappears. So it really is just almost like a trick of the light. It just happens to look very much like that to our eyes. Um, but, the, but the resemblance is quite Yeah, I think that's the trouble, isn't it? It's like, you know, us naming constellations after things. You know, we, 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 we want to see something uh, that we, ident- we we associate with in, in plants, don't we? And so that's why we make these associations. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess likewise, the, the Venus flytrap, we sort of make it into some kind of, I don't know, what we're trying to say about Venus flytraps but you know really the Venus flytrap's got a pretty clever system going to uh, trap its prey I, I'm always wondering how on earth that evolved it evolved from um, a, a hairy sticky leaf um, so what botanists like me are able to do is we can sort of piece together the evolutionary history of some of these plants by looking at the DNA. So we know by from DNA sequence data, so rather like sort of DNA fingerprinting that we see on, on crime programs, um, we can work out um, which is related to which. And we know that Venus flytraps are in fact distant relatives of Nepenthes pitcher plants and also the sundews, the, the sticky leaved plants that we sometimes um, grow on windows seals as well. And um, we're actually able to infer by looking at at which plants are related to which, um, what the ancestral um, state was. So so what the ancestor of these different plants looked like. And we believe that it looks like a hairy, sticky leaf. So a little bit like a sundew, perhaps. I wasn't expecting you to be able to answer that question, but I'm very impressed that you did. <laughs> um, well, that's really interesting, and that makes perfect sense. And in your book, you've you've got a picture of a trap with a small, um, I guessing, I'm guessing it's some kind of amphibian in there or lizard in there. Do they really? Is that one of the? Do they really capture things as big as that? They do. I mean, I, I suppose my my painting makes it look a little bit larger, more formidable than it is. And and the first thing that happens when I show people a Venus flytrap who haven't seen one before, which surprisingly, if, uh, you know, quite a few people haven't. And they say, oh, it's a bit smaller than I expected. Um, but actually, tiny frogs and lizards, um, particularly juveniles that crawl into the trap, it, it can actually trap those and it, and it will feed on them. So this really is a plant predator, Jane. I've got some Venus flytraps and we did an episode on them last year and uh they 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 are quite i mean mine mine are outside in my uh sort of greenhouse compotting shed and they do have a nice diet of of flies and stuff there's not that many tiny frogs going in there but i i can imagine that they'd certainly have a go <laughs> if they possibly could and and i guess this is one of these plants that people do tend to you know they, they buy one for their kid and it lasts a few weeks and it dies do, do you grow these yourself are these a plant that you have or do you find you have success with them? Yeah, I do. Um, I tend to grow them in 
fish tanks actually and i find that if you grow them under a little bit of glass and and you give them lots of rainwater in a sunny place they're, they're actually very easy um they tend to well they don't like tap water in in most places as, as i'm sure you know um and they like a lot of light and they don't like to be too wet in winter um, and they're a little bit sensitive. So if you get one of those things wrong, then you can finish one off. Um, but to be honest, lots of rainwater, lots of sunlight and high humidity, and they can just go forever, really. And often I think the other trouble is that, you know, curiosity gets the better of people and they end up triggering those traps. And as as we know, once they've been <laughs> triggered a couple of times, three times, they've kind of exhausted their energies and, and they're going to die off. So if that happens with all the traps, then, yeah, it's... <laughs> They don't mind a bit, yeah, but I think if you <laughs> if you did it every day, they might get a bit tired. <laughs> you, you're underestimating here children's ability to, <laughs> well, exactly, to keep yeah. hassling plants. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and some of these other picture plants that are pretty easy to grow, the Saracenias, um, I'm, I think that's a plant that, that we should be growing more because actually it's pretty hardy and easy to grow, and yet they're not very popular Tell me a bit about the Saracenias. Yeah, I, I think often, again, people try and sometimes if they get something wrong, um, the plant dies and then it sort of um, propagates this myth that, that they're very difficult to grow. And actually, if you understand what they like, they're really not that hard. I mean, Saracenia purpurea um, is actually pretty hardy, as, as I'm sure you know. And the Darlingtonias, the Cobra lilies, um, these are what, great plants to start off with and to try. And if you give them loads and loads of rainwater, you must never let them dry out in the summer and keep them um, cool and damp in the winter. Um, they're really, really not that difficult. And these are also quite menacing, these, these plants. So uh, Saracenia flava, uh, the yellow trumpet pitcher, scientists have isolated a drug that it produces in its nectar called conine. And this intoxicates insects that visit the traps looking for nectar to feed on. And it makes them drowsy and more likely to tumble into its abyss of digestive enzymes. So this is another plant that um, is, is a, a very menacing and sinister um, species. Wow. Oh, well, I don't like the sound of that. I mean, I guess that's the wonderful thing. Are there any of these plants that are going to be producing you, things that, it, I mean, this is a terribly uh, human centric thing to say. Obviously, plants aren't there just to provide us with stuff. But mm. I, I always think that's, that there's so many um, hidden treasures amongst these plants. Are we realising that some of these plants might actually have useful um, things in them that we can kind of then manufacture ourselves to 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 do useful things for us oh my goodness absolutely we are and we in many cases we're just scratching the surface um there are plants with um as well as the the medicinal uses there are plants with certain surface properties that material scientists and engineers are very interested in because we can learn from these properties for example we can produce materials that might be good for soaking up oil spills in the ocean um, <clears throat> based on the surfaces of, of lotus leaves for example or, or water lettuces plants that have um, super water repellent surfaces and we can even infer properties from these surfaces of carnivorous plants so the the slippery bit of the nepenthes trap um, engineers are very interested to know just what makes it so slippery and how we can control um, fluid behavior on on a lubricated surface which effectively is what this is because insects aquaplane off it into the trap there's so much we can learn from plants and i think we just need to look 
look a bit harder um, and also to conserve plants because um, as we're all aware we're, we're losing some species at an alarming rate and unless we conserve them and understand them we may never know what properties they have that are useful to us. I'm sure some of these plants that you've actually got uh, listed here are are endangered are there any of these that are that are really um, on their way out that we should be uh, worried about the future of? Yeah I mean I, I suppose a, a, a positive way of looking at it would be that um, Mount Kinabalu in Borneo is a wonderful mountain where so many fantastic plants grow and um, a couple in the book grow there so Rothschild orchid which we mentioned before grows only on that mountain as does Nepenthes raja the king pitcher plant they only grow in the Kinabalu National Park um, I think now because we understand um, how rare they are and the importance of conservation, they're heavily protected and also they can be grown via tissue culture, which means people are less likely to go and um, loot them from, from the wild. Nonetheless, um, there are many plants in other habitats that are that are much more vulnerable and susceptible to extinction because they they don't have the same conservation measures in place and and that's a real worry for us you've got 129 pages in this book chris uh, sorry, not 129, 119. Have I? Now, how did you select uh, <laughs> the plants for this book? I wonder, were there any that you didn't have room to include that you just wish you'd managed to, to fit in? Yes. I mean, there are so many plants that, that could have been featured in the book. I wanted to give as broad a selection as, as possible. Um, there are some plants, in fact, that I've since since writing the book, I've actually discovered or not discovered, but found out about that. I thought, my goodness, I wish I could have included that. There's... Um, a tiny little flower that when I was in um, a tropical island in Japan, the botanists there told me about. And it's a very, very rare blue flower that hardly anyone's ever seen. Um, it's called Oxygena. And there are only six different species in the genus, um, a couple of which are extinct already. And so little is known about this very peculiar flower, um, its biology, what pollinates it. And it's so bizarre looking. It looks like some strange sea creature. And I thought when I discovered this, my goodness, I wish I'd put that in the book. So <laughs> maybe the next edition. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you might you might have to have a, a part two uh, to yeah, this. Exactly, even weirder plants. <laughs> exactly. And obviously working in a botanic garden, this is a great place to publicise your book when you've done events um, around this book so far, what what's the most common reaction that people have given you uh, or common question that you've had? I, I hope that people see plants in, in a slightly different way, um, because I guess coming back to how we started our conversation, some people think of plants as beautiful and ornamental, which, of course, they can be. Um, a lot of people think of plant biology as sometimes a little bit dull or irrelevant. So we often think when we think of plant biology of photosynthesis or things that we've learned about in school. Um, but really, I'd like to showcase a different side to plants and plant biology and to show people just how fascinating plants can be. Often when I talk to people about conservation, if you mention an endangered species to someone, they'll tell you about pandas, tigers, that kind of thing, rhinos perhaps. Um, but I've never met anyone who, if you ask them about an endangered species, will give you the name of a plant. And the reality is that some reports suggest that up to one in five 
plant species worldwide is threatened with possible extinction in the future. And that's a very alarming fact um, for botanists. And so I take my role very seriously um, in trying to inspire and galvanize a new generation of botanists who can go out there, understand what um, plant species we have and um, prioritize their conservation. So I guess underlying the, the what seems like a sort of frivolous and lighthearted um, theme, I, I think there is an important message uh, about how important plants are and we must um, understand, um, celebrate, but also conserve them. Tell me a bit more though about the work specifically that you do at Oxford Botanic Garden. Are you involved in, in day-to-day care of the plants or is it research? What's your main focus? Yeah, so um, I do research. I'm, I'm from a research background originally and um, I'm very interested in the evolution of plants. So earlier your question about how a Venus flytrap evolved, those are the sorts of questions that I love to answer using a range of different tools, often lab-based, although sadly I don't spend any time in a lab anymore because I used to really enjoy that. Um, And so I work with people from different disciplines like mathematicians and engineers to try and answer um, questions about um, how plants work. So that's the sort of the research part which I love to do. And I'm also um, involved in some conservation work, which I love. So I get to visit some um, fantastic places. So earlier this year, I was in Japan and um, I got to visit an island called Okinawa, which is um, full of wonderful subtropical rainforest. And to see some of the plants that we're so familiar with that we grow in our homes growing in the wild, that's always um, such a wonderful experience. It really is without compare. Do you get to interact with the public at all at the Botanic Garden? Do you kind of oh gosh, I can just help this person answer this question they've got about what they're wondering why this plant is doing this. Do you ever kind of just, you know, tap someone on the shoulder and say, well, I can explain that to you or <laughs> would that take up too much of your day? <laughs> um, no, well, I mean, you know, Oxford Botanic Garden, it, it's, a, it's a public place. And actually we're, we're very lucky because it gives us an opportunity working at the Botanic Garden to engage with many thousands of people every year. Um, and as I mentioned, I take my role very seriously in in educating and engaging people with the importance of plants. And actually, that mission is made a little bit easier because so many people come to our beautiful garden every year. And so by um, putting up interpretation boards, um, by giving talks or lectures, we we have um, a, a wide ranging audience that we're able to engage with, um, which which makes that mission accomplishable. Uh, I've got a lot of American listeners and, and I've had quite a few emails from, from people saying, oh, I'm coming to the UK. What gardens should I visit? Uh, and also for obviously people in the UK to tell me what the kind of the highlights are of, of the Botanic Garden at Oxford for anyone who's coming possibly with a bit of a houseplant obsession. Are there, are there things we should be looking out for? <laughs> Yeah, so Oxford Botanic Garden is a wonderful place to visit. It, it's a relatively small garden um, compared with, with some of our gardens here in the UK, um, but it's a very diverse and compact collection. So it is a botanic garden and, and we have um, several thousand different types of plants. We have, um, again, some compact glasshouse collections um, for, for the houseplant lovers. Um, but one of the very interesting things about Oxford Botanic Garden is its history, because it's the oldest botanic garden in the UK. It's nearly 400 years old, and it was first established as a physic garden to grow medicinal plants and to um, educate students about um, the medicinal properties of plants and to make sure that they prescribe them uh, correctly. 
But really, it's just steeped in so much fascinating history. So um, within those four um, century old, centuries old walls um, is, a, is a lot of wonderful history um, to absorb in a beautiful setting. So I would very much recommend people come and visit. Oh, that sounds awesome. I haven't been for, for quite a few years. So I think that's a trip uh, that I should I should be making. I went to Cambridge Botanic Garden not that long ago. So yes, I've got to do. I've got to. Do, I can't. <laughs> I can't let that lie. Uh, so I will come and visit you. I promise. Um, and um, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you. I've got one more question, which I'm I'm going to I'm going to foist on you because I forgot to ask you. So apologies that this I haven't given you any warning. But um, I want to ask all my guests in the run up to Christmas uh, what they want Santa to bring them uh, that might be houseplant related for Christmas. What 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 one gift uh, would you like to have? It could be a plant. It could be a piece of equipment. It could be a pot. What, what would you like to have uh, to open on Christmas Day from uh, your houseplant loving <laughs> Santa? Yeah, you you have sprung that on I know. me, and the first Sorry. Thing, the first thing that came to my it might sound a bit uh, a bit strange, but um, I have a greenhouse in my garden, and I've I've re- that I've recently acquired, and I've always wanted a greenhouse, as you can imagine, ever since I was a little boy, and I never had one, <laughs> so I had lots of fish tanks and terraria on on my windowsill, and now that I have one, I want to make it into a, a little veritable rainforest, and I'm really excited about that, and what I'd love is a trough that I can put in there to make a sort of tropical pond during the summer months that I can festoon with all sorts of interesting um, plants like lotuses and papyrus and hanging baskets. And um, you, you, you get the picture. So that's what I really want. I want a trough <laughs> for my greenhouse. Oh, OK, I'm, I'm sure that Father Christmas will be able to supply that to fit that in his sleigh for you this Christmas, Chris. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, it's been fantastic. And I, I just I'm, I love this book. It's so much fun. So thanks so much, Chris. and you've opened your eyes to more crazy plants that you could be growing in your house just don't blame me when all your relatives get sick of the stench of your stapelias i'm planning an upcoming episode on how to take good photographs of your house plants so if there are things you want to know from the experts about how to get a good shot of your plants do let me know And also tell me who your favourite photographers are on Instagram. I'd love to get a list up in my show notes highlighting some of your favourites. I'll be back next Friday for more houseplant fun and frolics. I'll see you then. Bye. episode featured Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and Water in the Creek by Josh Woodward, all licensed under Creative Commons. 
See my website for details.